Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 102nd show, and I'm thrilled to have as our guest, Amy Kassar, author of Growth Dilemma, and Amy Insights, How to Keep Your Entrepreneurial Flame Lit. Amy, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Pleasure to be with you all. And for those of you who don't know, uh, he is from the Philadelphia area, and he's also a columnist for Inc. Uh, and so we're thrilled to have him. So tell us a little bit about your background in your business before we get into your book. Sure. So um, I had a variety of different experiences in my business life, which I think are also valuable. Before I started my company, Multifunding, I was the chief innovation officer for the largest issuer of credit cards to small businesses in the United States, a company called Advanta. We had a million customers, about a billion dollars worth of market cap and a thousand employees, and we completely decimated in the Great Recession. Before it was my turn to be let go, I helped let 960 people go, the toughest professional thing I ever did in my life. And then my turn came, came home, And on a Friday, I got fired by the bankruptcy trustees. On my way home, I went to the bank and deposited a check for my full home equity line of credit. And I then went home and told my wife what I did. And I started my company, Multifunding, on Saturday. That's my story. Wow. And and, and first, tell us, why did you write Growth Dilemma? And then second, I'm going to ask you you questions about your new book as well. So why did you write Growth Dilemma? So I think that. Many business owners don't, you struggle with these decisions about how big you want to get and how much risk you want to take in the process. And just growth is a risk. It's not binary. It's not simple. Just assuming to grow, sometimes you're growing too slowly or sometimes you're growing too quickly. So the growth dilemma, I hopefully gives you some tools to help you think these important issues through and these questions. And um, you're a columnist for Inc. Magazine. How long have you been a columnist and how did you end up becoming one? Well, I think I've been writing for Inc. for seven or eight years and being a part of that community and can't remember who introduced to them, but I do find a passion in writing and sharing knowledge and thoughts about finance and leadership and been writing for them pretty regularly. So. Well, that's great uh, because I love Inc. Magazine. It's one of my three favorite magazines along with the Harvard Business Review. And I also um, like uh, the Wall Street Journal. So my three go-to publications. Um, how has the pandemic changed your business and the world of financing early t- stage to small companies? Well, the pandemic changed our business in the respect that... Um, we, uh, we, our brand blew up in COVID. Uh, we became a lot more uh, known and recognized and people learned a lot more about us by all the education we 
provided. We decided that it was our role to do the best to offer education to the business owners about the PPP and the EIDL. So we set out to do that and uh, we did a lot of it. We didn't charge for it. So um, definitely, while I don't wish, I wish the pandemic never happened for all the pain it caused so many people for our business, it helped us. Um, so that's one part of it. The world of finance is just a little bit different because um, there's so much money on the street that through the PPP and the EIDL programs in the United States, there are many businesses that are just loaded with cash and they don't know what to do with it. And so that certainly slows down some part of the financing markets. Let's talk about your first book, The Growth to Mama. You mentioned giving entrepreneurs $1 million and deciding how they will invest it. Why $1 million And what did you learn from that exercise that surprised you? Well, the million dollars is sort of an arbitrary number. It could be any number that you pick. But sometimes money is a, is a blockade, a block, a mental block. So it is an important question, and I encourage all the listeners on the show to think about it, that pick whatever a number is, half a million, a million, $2 million, and just say to yourself, well, if you had that money to, I, I, now I call it the Uncle Joe question. So a new, a bit of a slightly different version of the question is if, and I don't know how many of the listeners on here or the US or around the world, but let's say your government gave you a million dollars and said, you have to invest this in your business in 2022 or we're taking it back. What would you do with that money? And almost everybody would come up with a list. And hopefully they would, that list would have anticipated returns on it. Well, then the next question is, why aren't you doing that? Because money is pretty cheap and or plenty of people have money sitting in their balance sheets because they got it got it during the pandemic. So but what did you, you know, in all those chapters, you featured a different company, all different industries, none of them Tesla or Apple, which I thought was great. Um, what was your takeaway? Was there anything that surprised you uh, from the answers you received? Anything that surprised me, there's a reason I don't talk about Tesla or Apple or Facebook or one of those uh, companies. Um, the the reason is that um, we're I'm a small business. People that we deal with are small businesses or, or entrepreneurs. And uh, case studies or insights from Apple or IBM or whoever probably aren't realistic for us anymore. It's about it's about the entrepreneurial mindset and the entrepreneurial mentality. That's where I love to be and where I love to live and who I love to help. And so that's who I wanted to interview in the book. Uh, and a question from the audience, is this funding from banks, angel investors, private equity, or something else? Uh, because he hasn't read the book yet. All right, so again, the book is about general concepts. The book could be applicable to anybody around the world. The funding that we do at Multifunding is from banks or non-bank lenders, and it's only debt. We do not do any equity or angel connect borrowers with or connect entrepreneurs with angel investors. We, we don't do that. That's not our thing. 
And what's the biggest difference? And is there one right way? Because uh, you talk about this in the book, you call 100 percenter and the safety netter. Explain the difference between the two. And is there a right way between the two of them? Everyone has to make their own decisions about how much risk they want to take in their business. And there's no right way. The right way is what's going to make you sleep well at night. So in the context of that book, the question is, if you're given a million dollars, how would you split it up between investing in your business or a mutual fund of your choice? Um, and no one's right or wrong. Some people would say they're all in, they're going to invest it all in their business. Other people would be a split and some people would be little or nothing in their business. So really the question, it's really a question of where you're at in your life and everyone makes finance decisions a little bit differently with a little bit of a different lens and that's the way it should be and it's completely appropriate. In The Growth Dilemma, you write about emotional versus rational decisions and gave a great example of someone choosing a super high rate of interest that didn't require a lien on their property versus a much lower, easier to manage rate that that, uh, required a lien. How do you get clients to take the emotional out of the decisions? I don't all the time. In other words, so clients make decisions about their financing in whatever way is going to get comfortable to them. So that example I gave of the book was with an entrepreneur who, this was very early on in our practice, who had given a, um, who was, if I recall correctly, we got them an option for an SBA loan for, I think, $900,000 and the interest rate was 6% and there was right. a lien, lien on their house. And the client said to us, hello, high water, no lien on the house, go out into the market and find something else. And the only other option we could find them was a one-year loan at 36% interest. Amazingly, still with a personal guarantee. And I wanted to fly to San Jose and strangle the guy, but that's what he chose. And unfortunately, he landed up bankrupt a few years ago. See, when we make financing decisions or risk decisions, we do it with the left side and the right side of our brain. There's what the spreadsheets and the numbers and the models tell us. And then there's what our emotions tell us and our egos tell us and our prior historical experiences with money tell us. And just kind of our guts and our instincts. And so everyone makes these decisions a little bit differently. And you can't really, there's no way you're going to pull all the emotion out of it ever. But it is important to try and understand what's driving your decision. Talk to some advisors about it, get some opinions, and making sure that you're making the best decision for yourself. Uh, Question from the audience. What characteristics do you find common among successful entrepreneurs? What have you learned over the years in, uh, well, actually not investing, but I guess raising money for different types of entrepreneurs? Yeah, so that, that really depends on what you define as a successful entrepreneur. So I never understood how when people raise rounds of money, oh, there's this big press release, everyone's giving them high fives, they just raised 3 million or 5 million or 10 million or $20 million or whatever it is from a venture fund or a private equity fund. And my answer is who cares? 
Um, so for me, a successful entrepreneur is an entrepreneur who builds a long-term, sustainable, profitable business that helps their community, helps their employees, and provides good value and service to their customers. And I, if I was given the choice between betting on a tortoise or a hare, I'd always bet on the tortoise. So my definition of a successful entrepreneur is, might be different to how other people define what a successful entrepreneur is. But again, that's a personal choice that everyone has to make up for, make up for themselves. Um, and I, and that's in life, right? You know, how you define success is different than I do. If you're a great teacher in a high school and your kids uh, go off to college, even though you're not rich from it, you've been successful, right? Yeah, it's like, Mark, and I don't, I, I don't, you know, the first time I met somebody and I asked her what she did, the first time I heard the term serial entrepreneur, and yeah. I asked her what she did and she told me she was a serial entrepreneur. And I literally thought, she makes she manufactured cereal <laughs> okay because i i don't i mean i am an entrepreneur but at least for me the way i see the world like i, I never want to start another business again <laughs> it's too difficult okay so <laughs> those those painful first few years um so again it just depends on where you are and what your perspective is well that's like you know, people who are wildly successful entrepreneurs who cash out for lots of money, they tell you how great and wonderful it is. But if you don't have those hits, like you said, it's, it's a painful process that you go through. And you take a lot of beatings along the way, and you just have to be resilient enough to keep getting off the ground and keep punching. Resilient, that's, that's, and, resilient and obstinate and naive enough, all combination of all those three. That's why it's a young person's game to be an entrepreneur, because you don't know what you don't know. And you're willing to keep taking those hits. You wrote about a client that had a methodical formula for deciding how much risk to take or invest in the business. Do you re recommend such approach and why? Well, a lot of the new work I've been doing, Mark, and working on a format, and new, my new stuff is about something called the velocity matrix. And let me explain to all of you what that means. I encourage everyone to take a step back. And again, I'm not sure who's on here and who's listening and where you're at in your journey. But if you own and run a business, I'd encourage you to take a step back and think about what you spent in 2021 that you had to and what you spent in 2021 that you wanted to. What you wanted to spend is money that you tried to experiment, use for growth and experimentation and evolution and new things that you wanted to try. And if you look at your P&L a little bit differently, you break that out and you then you can, we all talk about investing back in our business, but more often than not, we don't know what that means. So we did it for our company, multifunding, and we said, holy cannoli, we, I mean, it was about a $2 million company and we had invested about $300,000 in our business. And I had no idea what the number was. And I was like, holy cow, if I hadn't done that, and I'm, I don't regret that I did it, but if I hadn't done that, I'd have an extra $300,000 in the bank account today. That's a lot of money. My Uncle Sam would have taken some, but that's a lot of money. But if I had put that in the stock market, I could hit a button and see a portfolio report of exactly what investments I had made in my business over the last year and how they were doing. So we're constantly making decisions about what to invest in, who to hire, what new things to try, 
new marketing experiments, new sales experiments, new capacity. We should be tracking our investments in our business and understanding them and having a framework for seeing how we're doing and grading ourselves and our investment strategy and using the, the look in the rearview mirror to help us think through what we're going to do in the future. When figuring out how much capital to raise or borrow, should you ask for only what you need or is there a percentage you should ask, you should add to that number? Because, you know, at least in my world, because I've spent most all my world as an entrepreneur, and of course, investors are always cutting in half your projections, and I find that to be pretty accurate, and doubling your expenses. And so when you're looking to go and borrow money, or even if it's raising it, but borrowing is kind of like a type of raise anyway, should you should you say, okay, my spreadsheet says I need a million, but I really think I probably should have some kind of uh, cushion there that they add 10% on, 20%. What's your suggestion here? Well, I don't think there's a one hard rule, but I, I do think, at least when it comes to the debt world, the first thing you have to think about is if you have a business that has assets or has cash flow, do you have a line of credit? I have a line of credit or an asset-based line secured by your AR and inventory. And if not, you really should. But the line of credit isn't there for investing in your business. It's there for working capital, seasonality, or emergencies. And the story I tell about that is, let's say, I don't know, again, I'm not, you had a pizza shop um, down by the beach somewhere, the New Jersey shore or wherever you are, and it's the heat of your season, and your air conditioning unit blows. And it's Wednesday and you need $60,000 to replace it by Friday. And if you call a guy like me or a firm like mine and say, I need $60,000 by Friday and it's Wednesday and ask us to go find it to you and to go out to lenders, what are those lenders going to smell, Mark? They're, they're, they're going to smell blood. Okay, you, you, you never want to be in a situation where a lender is smelling blood. It's just not a good thing to be. So line of credits are th there for seasonality, working capital, and emergencies. That's one thing to think about. When you're looking to borrow money for the sake of investing in your business, you should do that with term debt. And there I encourage some thought exercises around um, how much money and for what reason. So I like to encourage people to make three budgets. So let's say you think you need $2 million. I'm making that number up. Well, actually write down what you're going to do with all that $2 million. And what do you think each of those investments is going to get you? And how that's going to affect your projections. Once you've listed, done, made your list for $2 million, say to yourself, and you see what that $2 million is you believe will do for you, or you have assumptions about what it will do for you, say to yourself, I was just, now I've got to cut my list in half and make your million dollar budget. And if it was a million dollars, what would that money do for you? And where will it get you? And then do that exercise one more time and cut it to half a million dollars and prioritize again. Usually I find the opposite. When people uh, think they need to borrow money, they often think they need more money than they actually do.
Well, I think you answered the question of this uh, particular person and how do you determine the right size of the line of credit for your business? So I think you gave them a good formula for thinking that through. Uh, let me just clarify, let me just clarify that mark if I can. It's a thumbnail. Yeah, sure. But I'd like to see a line of credit at the greater of 10% of top line sales, or if you have accounts receivable and inventory, 85% of AR and 50% of your inventory. Okay, I hope that helped answer that question for that person. When uh, conducting a PowerPoint presentation, is there a certain number of slides um, before it becomes overkill? I think PowerPoint encourages brain death. So it's really a question of um, how how you use the, the PowerPoint. When I use PowerPoint, I just used to like to use pictures. And I, I like to speak to the pictures and I don't like to use text. So if the PowerPoint is a guide to a presentation, I don't think it matters so much how many slides are on there. But if the PowerPoint is the means to the end and you're going to sit somewhere and read the PowerPoint, well, I'd rather go to sleep. <laughs> I, I I actually used it. I helped five of my clients. I'm not a loan broker, but I helped five of my clients get loans. And we just told the basic information in about 14 slides. And they found that to be compelling enough that they all got, uh, it all helped the, uh, the um, banks understand their business and it did help them get the loans. Um, should other executive management leaders participate in a pre uh, presentation or should it just be the CEO business owner? Well, again, at least from my experience, when you are applying for a loan or applying for equity or an investment, you have to think about what audience you're speaking to. So keep in mind that investors buy dreams and borrower lenders manage risk. So you should think about, um, make sure that what the message you're preparing is different to, and you're speaking to the audience that you're, you're speaking to. From my experience, we don't really present PowerPoint to lenders. We present a two, like a two-page summary of the business and really the financials to back it up. But that's how we work. Um, and yeah, it, I, I think a lot of people don't know what uh, loan brokers do. Can you uh, kind of give them uh, an overview about exactly how it works if somebody contacts you? How does that work? Yeah, so our job is to know the loan markets and the debt markets extremely well. And to understand the different products and how they interrelate to each other and how they relate to cash flow or collateral at the stage of the business. And so if what we'll do if somebody calls us is we'll do an evaluation of their situation. And we can pretty generally speaking, pretty quickly tell you what we think will work or will not work. Like you might belong in a 10-year SBA loan or you belong in equipment leasing or you belong in a factor or you belong in, you know, an asset baseline or some combination of all or whatever it is, what this is your down payment. And we can kind of frame for somebody what we think will work and where they fit in the market. And then if they want our help and we think we can help them get it done, um, then we're happy to engage with them and start collecting the documents and putting a package together and taking to our, our network of lenders. How do you know you pick the right loan broker? Like, what should somebody be looking for? And that because there's 11,000 of you folks, I looked it up for my own venture funding organizer. And uh, not we don't do that. We just provide a common app to apply. But you know, there's 11,000 folks doing this kind of work. And you're really good at it. And you have a great reputation for what you do. 
how do you how does someone pick the right loan broker? What kind of questions do they ask um, that person, and what should they expect? I never knew there were eleven thousand of us. I just thought it was me. Just kidding. <laughs> um, probably what. I mean, I, I remember one conversation years ago with somebody and we listened to their situation and I and he said he's calling me for a million dollars. And I asked him his situation. Da, 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 da. And I said, you'll be lucky to get $200,000. And he said, you're full of SHIT. Yeah. Uh, a guy on the phone just told me no problem you'll get me a million dollars and i said aha uh -huh. what did he want from you and he said oh eight points and the twenty thousand dollar non-refundable deposit and oh. blah 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 and i said listen carefully i said i'm telling you i don't want anything up front for you and i think there's a 50 percent chance i could get you two hundred thousand dollars for two percent, I don't remember what it was, and yeah. he's telling you that now you pick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I never heard from him again, which is okay. So, um, it's just from our perspective, at least the way we look at the world, um, we, our reputation is everything to us, and our reputation is our biggest asset, and we don't screw people. It's all good. Here's a question from the audience. What do you make of the online platforms like Cabbage and OnDeck that promise faster underwriting and funding? It's a good question. So I have a saying that if you go to McDonald's for lunch because you're in a hurry, you could have indigestion for a few hours and then you'll be over it. But if you make a financing decision in a hurry, you could have indigestion for a few years or ruin your business. Generally speaking, the Ondex and the cabbages in exchange for quote unquote fast funding, put people on debt treadmills that are very hard to get off of because they are high interest rates that have a quick quick payback. And there's a reason they're offering the fast funding because they're going to charge you, they're going to get a much higher return from you than the longer process. Always, folks, I beg you, slow down. Take a breath. Don't rush it. Would you rather borrow $100,000 and have six months to pay it back? And have to pay back $120,000 over six months, which is going to be, and you have to pay it back daily, which is a typical on debt type product, which would give you a monthly pay, a daily payment of roughly $1,000 to $1,100 a day. Or would you rather take six weeks, four weeks, and get that loan from the SBA and have 10 years to pay it back? And have a monthly payment of about $1,100 instead of a daily payment of like $1,100. Now, I'm not sure you can always get the SBA loan. You may or may not be qualified for it. But don't fall for the speed trap. 
slow down. I've seen um, too many businesses. Invariably, what happens is that cash flow pressure of those $1,100 a month a day payment starts to catch up. And then people take a, another one and then another one. And then they got stuck in a debt trap and they can't get out. Yeah. I mean, that's like cash advances. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. They're just, I've had clients that do that and it was crushing them. The rate of, the rate of interest and everything. Sorry, uh, guys. Apologize. Do you have a rule of thumb for optimal debt to equity ratio or another measure of reasonable indebtedness? No. It, it's very industry specific. Some industries are highly capital intensive and some aren't. What I encourage everyone to do is think about that monthly payment as you're considering debt and see how comfortable you are in your ability to make it. I think that's like mortgages and people um, buying too big a house they really can't afford and, and putting up 50% of their income. And then if anything happens like 2008, then they're dropping off the key in their mailbox and having to pack up uh, their van and live out of their van for a while. That's not a fun position to be in. No, for sure not. Yeah. You mentioned how, how, you handle how you handle the stress of being an entrepreneur. Can you please share your three tips? And this comes from your second book. I don't remember. What did I say? <laughs> well, think about what you feel is the ways, uh, best ways to handle. How do you handle stress? Well, one of the big ways I try to handle stress is not to worry about things that are not under my control, out in my control. So if there's something I can't fix, I try not to let it get to me. I was delayed for four hours on Philadelphia airport on Monday and I missed my first speaking engagement in my life. I was upset, but there was absolutely nothing I could do about it and it wasn't my fault. So I let it go. So one way to do is just try, uh, let go of things that you can't control. And the other just general tip for stress relief is if you don't learn to delegate, and figure out how to get a trusted team around you who you can count on to get things done and give them latitude and leeway to screw things up, you'll always be stressed because you'll be trying to do too much stuff. You're right about that. You, you write that cost cutting is not a strategy, but we often read in the Wall Street Journal about leadership coming in with a cost cutting strategy. Please tell us your thinking about this. So cost-cutting is not a strategy. What does that mean? So that was a post that I wrote early on in the pandemic when I would say to people, ask people, what's your strategy for pivoting or adjusting or readjusting to how you're going to evolve your business? And they would say, oh, we're going to cut our payroll or cut our expenses by 30% or 40% or whatever it is, and we're going to be okay. That's not strategy. Strategy is figuring out, here's how the landscape is evolved and changing. Here's how the markets are changing. Here's how the customer needs are changing. And I can then go ahead and uh, uh, make and, and adjust my product or services accordingly. And then 
based on my new strategy, if I have some of the wrong heads and seats or the wrong people, sure, I might have to let some people go and maybe I have to add some people to that strategy. But just saying you cut expenses, that in my opinion is not strategy. Yeah, you can't cut your ways to success, right? That's correct. Yeah, I obviously think that's kind of stupid. And you see it all the time that, you know, boards who are made up of finance people automatically go to somebody else and they feel like, hey, the uh, costs are out of control, but the person's not thinking about how to generate new revenue, just how to uh, reduce it. Um, one of the questions you asked when you wrote the book was asking readers, what is their COVID-19 strategy and where do they see the opportunities? Uh, what opportunities did you see and did that hold to be true and what opportunities still exist? I didn't really see it as an opportunity. I saw it as an obligation. So when COVID-19 hit, at least for, for us, I, I knew I had a, a, an, an ability to explain complicated financial products in English. And I knew I had enough of an understanding of the SBA, though I didn't know about the PPP, that my team and I just quickly decided we would go on the front line we weren't healthcare workers, so we couldn't go to hospitals and help, but we could go on the, to us, our part on the front line of the economic crisis and do everything we could to train as many, help as many entrepreneurs through the PPP and the EIDL as we could, and we did it for nothing. We didn't charge yeah. fees. For, we didn't charge fees for it. We just did it. We just felt that was our responsibility to the entrepreneurial community and to our country and to the economy. And that's what we did. And yeah, turned that's out, a good thing you did it. Yeah, it turned out. We I think we helped 40,000 businesses through COVID. And um, ultimately, that's going to help our brand. But I didn't do it for our brand. I did it because it was the right thing to do. And that always helps the brand when you do things every day when, when it's the right thing to do. Um, one of the questions from the audience is, it's, uh, it's not factoring if you have purchase orders for $2 million worth of product. Can you get a loan for $1 million? We know we can get 50% down. We really don't need a loan for production. So what would be a good percentage to satisfy loan confidence? Zero, 5%, 10 10%, 20%? Um. That's a loaded question where the, the, the devil's in the detail. So a, a lot of it is what are the lead times for the product and who's the end customer and is the end customer going to pay right away or is the end customer going to demand terms to, to pay the, the product as well? So there's a financing solution for that issue in either the production finance or the purchase order financing world. Um, but it really, um, the devil's in the detail. I don't feel comfortable to answer that without knowing more. So maybe uh, this gentleman uh, can write to you. Sure, or just reach out to us or whatever they want to do. It's no problem. Okay, great. Uh, you mentioned the concept of rabbit plan. What is that? Of what? Rabbit plan. Oh, man, you're triggering my memory here. Uh, Mark, um, it <laughs> man, you're embarrassing me. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
you give that some thought while I go to the next question here. In the book, you have a tool for measuring, and now you know I actually read all these books. In the book, you have a tool for measuring risk tolerance. Can you please explain it? And how do you know when you are maybe taking on too great a risk or limiting your risk to the point where you're missing a great opportunity? Yeah, so this is a big thing, and the second, uh, I'm gonna have to go back to the rabbit. I didn't sleep, I, I slept like three hours last night, so maybe my memory's a, li a little off today. Uh -huh. But um, we all have a different risk tolerance, and if anyone's interested, on the website, growthdilemma.com, you can actually go and get a score of your risk tolerance on a scale of one to 25 and see what it is. And our risk tolerance changes over time. So usually early on in our businesses, we have an exceedingly high risk tolerance because we have no choice in the matter. And we do a lot of crazy stuff in the beginning years of our business to get it up and running and going. And we often sadly get into some messy debt or some on deck or cabbages or other things and you live through that hell and hopefully you work through it and then you never want to see another you 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 feel you took all the risk you took and you never want to do it again ironically though sometimes when you've actually figured out your business model and you know how to make money that's the time to throw the fuel in the fire. And that's the, actually the time to be considering debt to accelerate your growth. And so our risk tolerances change over time. And on growthdilemma.com, there's five questions and you can go and get your score on a scale of five to 25. And what's important to do is to think about if you have a low risk tolerance, which is fine, is that hurting your ability to grow your company? And or if you are either going into a business with a business partner or you have a business partner right now, sometimes I encourage folks to think about um, going to the um, each of you doing the, the growth dilemma, the risk tolerance score, because sometimes we see problems. Let's say a company really needs a loan call it for a million dollars and the loan requires each owner who owns more than 20% of the company to put a lien on their house and one partner is willing to do it or one partner is not willing to do it you have a problem and so understanding each other's risk tolerance before you get into a venture and checking in on that on an ongoing basis is an important thing to do when things get rough, you recall your son's fight for life as he was um, born premature. And I went through exactly the same thing um, with my daughter and she had a lot of complications, but now she's killing it with a global marketing practice. What did you learn from that and how did it help you deal with adversity? So, I mean, I'll, I'll share two stories with you. One's serious and one's cute, but... Um, when my son was in the NICU for six weeks, um, it's always hard to say, but there were there were kids in beds or incubators next to him that were much worse off than he was. And while I prayed for them, it, it gave me some solace that he was going to be okay. And it all turned out that he was going to be great. So um, 
I do have a picture of him in my office, holding him um, in the palm of my hand. And whenever I think I'm having a crappy day, which happens sometimes, um, I pop out that picture and I put things in perspective. I go, this is easy. And that 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 helps me. On a more humorous, on a more humorous note, I'll tell you a story, Mark. Mm-hmm. When I went to my first girlfriend in college, and I went to visit her and meet her family in Chicago for the first time. And I was told I had to bring a suit to meet her parents and have dinner at the country club. And we sat down and her father started drilling me. What did I do? What are my career plans? What did my father do? What did my grandfather do? Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it was like the greatest inquisition known to mankind. And in the middle of this, they came and asked me for a dr- drink orders. And what I really wanted was a triple scotch. But <laughs> I thought that might be disrespectful. I wasn't of age. So I asked for an iced tea, yeah. which he harassed me about. I wouldn't have whatever. And then the drinks came. And I think for a mental break in the Inquisition, I took the lemon to squeeze it and put it in the iced tea. And I guess I was shaking so badly and so nervous that I sent the lemon flying across the dining hall of his country club into one of his buddies' laps. (laughs) And while that was a petrifying experience at the time, um, whenever I'm in a business situation now where I feel like someone's trying to shake me up or intimidate me, I've trained myself to think about that lemon and I start laughing and that's the end of it. So sometimes difficult experiences and I'm not comparing my son to that jackass who was giving me a hard time in his country club. Um, But you can, if you use tough experiences in life to give you perspective in the future, then you can learn from them and benefit them. I'm sure you pass that on to your kids, those stories. Of course. But they yeah, think yes. they can't can't imagine me being intimidated. But yeah. I can't. We're all human. <laughs> they imagine you as the intimidator. Nah, nah not me. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, what's the biggest mistake business leaders make when deciding on a funding option? Because you know, as we talked earlier, that person was willing to pay like thirty six percent interest uh, on a three year loan when he could have gotten six percent and amortized it over ten years. So. What's the biggest mistake uh, these leaders make when picking a funding option? And, and a lot of times they do make major mistakes in, in their selection. So, first of all, slow the heck down. Secondly, get some opinions and some advice. Thirdly, and I see my friend Marsha O'Connor on here, who's a member of Entrepreneurs Organization with me. but. If you can join the peer group, join it. Um, Marsha and I are members of Entrepreneurs Organization of Philadelphia. It's it's transformational. She's waving. It's been transformational for me to uh, have a support network around me when um, uh, when I need advice. But there's always more than one way to skin the cat. And don't just assume that the path you're on 
is the right path. And I can share two stories about this. Go ahead. Um, once early on in my practice, um, a woman came in and some jerk had taken the only $40,000 she had and written her a business plan for, um, she wanted to start manufacturing horse shampoo. And she had the biggest, I think the business plan weighed more than my newborn. And $5 million to buy equipment and build her building and hire her management team. And I said to her, have you sold anything yet? And she said, no. And I said, um, I hate to tell you, but you have to throw your business plan in the garbage can and go find a co-packing facility and go knocking on doors and start trying to find a customer. And I never heard from her again, but I pretty much guarantee you she never raised her $5 million. So she was stuck on an amount of money that she needed to raise. And she wasn't willing to get off the ground for less and do the hard work. Uh, you see that a lot with a lot of newbie entrepreneurs, uh, right. you know, because when, all they have to do is watch Shark Tank. And what's the first thing these guys ask is, what do your sales look like before they're even thinking about investing? And if you're not able to sell your product, why would they put money in? And, uh, and investors put money in because the bank won't loan you enough and you're on fire and you need more, more, more money. Correct. So, that's when they come in. When presenting to investors, what information should you provide and what's really unnecessary to give them? Again, I don't coach people on presenting to investors. I coach people on presenting to lenders. But is there something that, that's not even necessary to provide? I mean, what's, what's the things that are gonna tip the balance for you? What do they really look at at the end of the day? Well, at least for me, when I'm, cons I think an investor is looking at the person more than anything else. But it depends who you're speaking to. Are you talking to a venture capitalist who's a fund? Are you talking to an angel investor? Are you talking to an individual? Perhaps the most important lesson in all is know your audience. Time and time again, people think talking to lenders and investors is the same thing, and it's absolutely not. So, under, like, if you are preparing for a job in an interview, I've been coaching my son, he's a senior at college going through the job interview process, and every single time he's going up to bat for a job interview, my coach to him is to try and understand who's on the other side of the table with him. Go check out their Facebook profile. Go check out their LinkedIn profile. See what you can learn about that person that you're speaking to and see if you can understand what makes that person tick. And I think the same general rule applies to um, uh, general rule applies to whoever it is you're speaking to. What, what's their motivation? What makes them tick? And they're not all the same. There's a section entitled in your book, and I'm hoping you know this section. <laughs> There's a section entitled, confused about what to do next. Follow your customer. What's your process for leveraging your customers to find new opportunities? Or, or not leverage is maybe a, a harsh word, 
but learning from your clients. Yeah, I think people, so especially COVID has changed the world, but we don't even begin to understand the dominoes of COVID yet. There are economic dominoes, there are social dominoes, and there are health dominoes that are going to be with us for at least a decade. And the cheese keeps moving around us. And so what I say to people is try understand what's going on in the head of your customers or your clients and adjust and follow their lead instead of trying to, to make them follow you. So as an example, in our business, pre-COVID, we used to do a lot of work in capital loans to give people money to grow and expand. And what we learned from talking to our customers now is that so many of them have more money on their balance sheets today than they did at the beginning of the pandemic because of the PPP and the EIDL and the ERTC and, and all these programs. And we learned that where there was a need for financing now was more on the acquisition side or the partner buyout side. And we started following that, those trains. So today, if you look at the loans, we do a lot more of it as acquisition finance and let's say working capital financing. But how we figure that out is staying close to our customers. In the book, you talk about the fear of taking the next step. How do you overcome that fear and what do you recommend others do? Building a business is like running a marathon. And I can't say, I can't, probably couldn't run a mile, so I can't say I really would understand what it would mean to run 26 miles. But um, you, you've just got to look, you got to just, Maybe not worry about if you're at mile four, you got to just focus on getting from mile four to five and what's it going to take. And you got to push yourself through and and keep keep it going forward. What COVID, I think, taught us many entrepreneurs was that and the the title of Amicites is how to keep your entrepreneurial frame lit. But sometimes we lose our entrepreneurial flame as our businesses get more comfortable and easier to run and more predictable. And so we lose our ability to, uh, we lose some of that initial like fire that we had when we begin our businesses. And people who didn't figure out really fast how to bring that fire back kind of died in COVID. And so you've got to think about almost going back to those days when you we're soon, again, I'm not sure who's on this call and what stages they are in your journey. But in this first year or so, when you're just starting out, you're either too dumb, naive, ignorant, or you have no choice. You're going to do crazy stuff. And sometimes we have to, if we want to push our business to the next level, we have to remember that and bring it back. What skill sets do you think today's entrepreneurs have to develop in a more technologically sophisticated and globally competitive world? Nimbleness and flexibility. 
so, and being willing to admit and understand that you're wrong. The, the, perhaps the biggest mindset is the ability to stay open-minded and curious and not be fixated on your path. So that woman who spent, I think about it, the woman with the horse shampoo, I think she'd yeah. been trying to raise her money for nine months before she got to me. She wasn't raising her money at that rate. So it's about your ability to keep listening and thinking about what opportunity might be around the corner or what you can learn. And then building a team around you that can support you and supplement you and back you up in the process. I'm just curious myself, what, what books and publications and, and or podcasts do you listen to to keep current and make sure that you're not falling behind yourself? So it's embarrassing. Um, I'm not a... I'm not a big enough, uh, big enough reader, but I do love to um, go listen to speakers at EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. I love following the different coaches in the Scaling Up Organization or Vern Harnish. And I just find by taking the time to go listen to speakers, I'm, I, you, you never know what nugget you're going to pick up or idea that you're going to pick up that you otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't have had. I wish I read more than I did. I don't, but I like to be in communities of people with the same mindset than I am. And I couldn't encourage anyone more to think um, uh, about entrepreneurs organization, go for it, John Kaler. Um, and if you're not, not in Philadelphia, there's there are EO chapters in cities around the world. Um, but just getting into a community of like-minded people where you can learn from each other and being in a forum where you can do that is incredible. Is there a minimum is there a minimum revenue for uh, being part of the entrepreneurs organization? So EO has two thresholds. There's an accelerator program where the minimum revenue is 250. And then to be in the full EO program, I believe the, the not I believe the minimum revenue is a million dollars. And to be in EO, if somebody can fire you, you can't be in. So you have to be your own boss. Got it. There, there are other peer groups out there like Vistage and others that are different, but my bet's on EO. So finally, do you see interest rates going up? And is that a good or bad thing? Because some economists think. Raising interest rates will stop the inflation, but I think other folks are worried that will dampen the economy because money will cost more. So what's your take on that? And you've been through those cycles in the past. What do you advise your clients on uh, and how do, you, how, do they, how do you deal with it? So I love all you guys. If I really knew what was going to happen to interest rates, I'd be lying on the beach in the Bahamas right now because I would have hedged against it and I wouldn't be able to answer that question. That being said, interest rates are probably going to go up at least for a little, I don't know for how much. Just everyone should keep in mind, there's no time in the world history that I'm aware of where governments around the country, around the world, literally printed trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars to keep people off food lines. 
And I don't think that anyone knows with any degree of accuracy how the economy is going to play out for the next year until it comes to some normalcy. And you can either be fearful of that or you can lean into it and say, that's an opportunity, let's go. That's what I'm choosing to do. Any parting words for folks about uh, your industry or just being in business for themselves? Follow your dreams. Don't be afraid to take risks. Be obstinate, be stubborn. And But if you don't love it, and that's the only other thing I would say is my blessing is that I work in an industry and a space. My passion is helping entrepreneurs and I get to do it every day. And if you can do that, that's awesome. And, and um, I'm just going to share with you guys in the text my email information if anyone wants it or my yeah, Twitter. Yeah, we're going to send them the link uh, anyway when we send everybody the video. Okay. Um, so I'm glad you gave them that. Okay. Um, if you don't really, if you're if you're in the startup stage, it's going to be longer, harder, and tougher um, than you think it is. And if you don't really love it or feel passionate about it, don't do it. So, like I always joke that um, if I'd started out this business twelve years to go to manufacture shoelaces, I would have been done in like a year because I have no passion about manufacturing shoelaces. And I, it, it wouldn't have been worth the pain. So if you're going to find something that you love, awesome, go for the gold. No different than relationships. 100%. You want it, yeah, because it's going to be good, good times and bad times for sure. I mean, obviously, people loved uh, hearing you talk about this. I hope people will get your book. And uh, they can, of course, get your newsletter like I do and read it daily, uh, the things that you send out. And so I'll make sure you get all the people who signed up for this program so you can put them on your list to keep them informed and educated. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in today. And we hope everybody has a great, safe weekend. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you again. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you. Thanks so much, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.